The following is intended only for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome, dear listeners, to another chilling episode of the Anthology of Horror podcast, where we continue to embrace the dark and delve into the eerie. I'm your host, Springheel Jack, and I am excited to inform you that our Halloween special is still in full swing. Tonight we have a spine-tingling tale titled The Night Shift, crafted by none other than the incredible author Jay Darkmoor. Hailing from the UK, Jay brings a unique blend of crime and investigation expertise to the world of horror. Jay is a connoisseur of all things dark and twisted, fearlessly exploring the macabre, the demonic, and the darkest corners of the human psyche. He is a master of putting his characters in dreadful predicaments and then plunging them into utter darkness. With a penchant for self-published novels and horror, crime, and dark fantasy dystopia, Jay draws inspiration from literary giants like Stephen King, Keith C. Blackmore, and Nick Cutter. His tales will grip you leaving you breathless in the shadows of his imagination. But that's not all. J. Darkmore is not confined to the written word alone. He dedicates his free time to making enlightening YouTube videos that guide aspiring writers on their creative journeys. He's also passionate about promoting books he's enjoyed because a good story is a treasure worth sharing. In addition to his chilling tales, Jay is a devoted single parent to his son Joe, who happens to be his biggest fan, and a source of unwavering support. If you're ready to explore the depths of fear with us, and if you dare to tread the path of darkness, check out J. Darkmore's haunting works at jdarkmoreauthor.com. That is, jdarkmoreauthor.com. And make sure you stay with us as we continue our Halloween special, bringing you nightmares that will linger long after the night has ended. So dim the lights, settle in, and brace yourselves. For the Night Shift by the brilliant J. Darkmore. A note from the author. Back in 2010, I spent a short time living in an old terrace house in my town of Wigan. I always had the feeling of eyes on me, heard noises, and had doors closed when I left them open. One night I heard the sound of a woman scream and race up the stairs. I woke up and found the house to be empty and the bedroom next to mine's door closed when I had left it open. Inside the room, all the wardrobe doors were open and the once neatly made bed covers were on the floor. I later found out that a previous occupant, a young woman, had hung herself in that same room. I left that house that night and never went back, but I will hear the scream of that dead woman for the rest of my life. The Night Shift Have you ever seen a man die? Carl said. A rugged-faced man with skin darker than the coffee he was drinking. His eyes were bulging, veiny, like he had forgotten what sleep felt like. 
On the rigs, Tom said, touching the cuffs of his moth-bitten suit jacket, he was a friend of mine. It's the reason I left. It made me think about the dangers of being out on the sea. Tom leant back in his chair, the smell of salt water tingling in his nostrils, then the smell of the extra-strong coffee permeating the small office. I see, Carl said in his rasping voice. The interview had been going on for just over 15 minutes, and neither man had said very much at all. Long stares, like Carl were trying to weigh Tom up or figure him out, see what he was made of. You ever done security work before, Mr. McKenzie? Tom shook his head. No, he said, a little too quickly, but, he rebuked, remembering he couldn't afford to fuck up the job opportunity. He had medical bills to pay. But it can't be that hard, can it? Again, Tom slapped himself mentally, digging himself an even bigger hole he was trying to claw out of. Carl leaned back and layered those tobacco-stained fingers within each other. His suit jacket was clean, crisp, tailored even. It's okay, Carl smiled, his missing teeth pushing through those dry lips like missing tombstones in a graveyard. Most people say that. The work is easy, yes, but the solitude is something you have to be wary of. It's not something to be snuffed at. Long nights alone can play tricks on a man's mind. You're the fifth person I have interviewed for this position in the last six months. Tom raised a brow. Why so many? Carl held his stare. Something was lingering behind those bulging eyes, like a poker player not wanting to let it slip after going all in. But what cards was he holding? Was it a single three or a full house? Tom shook away the feeling of ice creeping under his skin. I'll be okay. I'm used to being on my own and I'm not scared of the dark. He laughed, but the jovial tone fell dead. Carl's eyes stayed unmoved and his lips remained pursed together. I asked you if you have ever seen somebody die, Carl said with a heavy tone. Tom again felt the cold return. The touch of the arctic wind on his face carried the screams of a drowning man. He pulled open a drawer and took out some paperwork. We have spoken to your last employer, Atlantic Oil, LTD. They say you uh, had a drinking problem on the rig. I don't know what that has to do with anything, Tom said, leaning back once more, his hands folding together. Is it still a problem? Carl inquired. Tom's face contorted, his lips tight behind his bushy beard. I haven't touched a drop in just under a year. Carl nodded. The reason I bring it up, Mr. McKenzie, Carl leaned forward, clearing his throat. The night, he said, the shadows, they can bring things from your mind back to life. Have you ever spoken to a professional about what happened to you on the rig? Tom scrunched his face like biting into a rotten apple. With all due respect, sir, I don't think that's any of your business. My apologies, Carl rasped, leaning back into his chair again. The reason I ask is we have had past workers fall under great stress while on their shifts. We are a long way from another town, and it's very solitary. Now you'll be starting this job in the darkest part of the year, not to mention the coldest. I just need to know that you're up for the task. I can handle it, Tom said. Carl smirked again, that toothy grin peering at him. What do you mean great stress? Tom asked, more thinking out loud than expecting a real answer. Carl shifted in his seat. Well, they've reported strange goings on. I don't believe in any of it, of course, but then again, you are the fifth person I've interviewed for this position in a few months. The last employee was found by the morning cleaner, 
with his hand down to his elbow in the mail sorter. He died en route to the hospital. Tom's eyes widened. Did he lose his fucking keys or something? Carl laughed quietly. Perhaps. Tom let the story fade from his mind. This was obviously some kind of a practical joke that they play. He had worked on an oil rig where all people did was scare each other and play jokes on each other all the time. It was the boredom, play games or go crazy, or drink, and drink a lot. I'm just making sure your welfare's in check, Carl said. Thanks, Tom sighed, but I'll be fine. Carl nodded and took out some paperwork. I don't mean to scare you. You can't scare me. A thick silence fell between the men then, the ticking clock in the corner of the room irking Tom's patience. The large window from the main office next to him was showing lots of cars leaving the parking lot of the warehouse of the Welch Mill Delivery Company. The sun lazily dipped behind the forest that encroached across the road. The streets were going to be busy soon, and he didn't have time to listen to ghost stories. Sorry to be rude, Tom said, shifting in his chair, but I have somewhere to be soon, somewhere important, so if I got the job or not. Carl took another long drink of his coffee. He checked the clock behind Tom and checked the long shadows creeping from the woods onto the asphalt. He stood, stretching out like a stiff piece of wood and moved to the window. The sun painted the sky pink and red, bleeding into each other as the daylight died. Carl stood silently for a few moments, touching his face and running his hand through his short, graying hair. He couldn't have been much older than Tom, maybe mid-fifties, but his face was aged, deep wrinkles on his neck and cheeks. Finally, at the end of Tom's patience, Carl moved to his desk and took out a small bundle of papers with a pen and pushed them to Tom, who began filling them out roughly, signing where the little paper arrows told him to. He handed the paperwork back to him, and they shook hands. You start tomorrow night, Carl said. Tom nodded, a slight smile, and began putting on his coat over the faded suit jacket. Carl thumbed the paperwork, a faraway look in his eyes. He took one last look at Tom as he went for the door like he was saying farewell to a man heading off to war, a man whose memory would haunt his dreams forever. traffic heading into the city was anything but ideal. As Tom eyed the rows and rows of solid red brake lights in front of him, he felt his blood pressure begin to rise. He turned on the radio of his pickup and let the sound of classic rock pelt his ears for a few moments, before plugging his phone into the center console and clicking open his music library. A hit of the shuffle button and the melodic sounds of indie music came flooding into his ears. His mood felt a little bit better albeit the taunting digital clock on the dashboard flickered at him, telling him that he was very late indeed. The interview had gone well, but Tom felt a little uneasy about it. Not the stories which the manager had told him. He was used to horror stories and things that go bump in the night. You don't spend eight months isolated from the world on an arctic rig and not see a few strange things after all. Tom saw the phone buzzing and connected it to his Bluetooth. He already had nine points on his driver's license for speeding to late appointments. 
He didn't need any more for being on his mobile phone. Which is why Jane had bought him the adapter for the damn thing in the first place. I'd rather you get here late than never, she had said one day when he had been pulled over by the police for doing 57 and a 30. Thankfully, the officer had a heart and let him off with a warning when Tom explained why he was going so fast. Most of his points had come from static speed cameras he hadn't noticed since moving into the area. The heartless robotic fuckers. He answered the phone, swiping along with the screen with his fingertips. Hey babe, Tom said, the frustration in his heart melting away at the sight of her name. Hey. She sounded calm, which was always a good thing. Happy to speak to him, which was even better. How did it go? I got the job, Tom said, a little more flatly than would be expected. That's great. Jane spoke with what little strength she could muster. How do you feel about it? Happy. You don't sound too happy about it, she said a little worried. You know why, Jane. You know I don't like this kind of work anymore. The only reason I'm taking it is the money, okay? They aren't too strict on the background checks either, and I can start quickly. Didn't even mention my record. Well, that's good, she said. It was a long time ago anyway. I know, he said. The interviewer was a real stiff, though. Tom let his hard lips crack a smile, and Jane giggled. He imagined her standing against the wall, cradling the phone in her ear, and twirling the cable around with her fingertips. But he knew she would still be in bed. The credit on the call soon to run out. Oh, really? I can't wait to see you, and you tell me about it. She laughed again, and that sweet sound cut Tom into pieces. He ran his rough tongue along his lips, his beard leaving a taste of tobacco in his mouth that had stained his facial hair a dirty yellow. He hadn't smoked since Jane had come home from the doctors, but the craving had never left him. He had just gotten better at ignoring it. I don't have to take the job, you know, Tom said with a sigh. I'd rather stay at home and take care of you myself. We can take the hit on the money. We can live on what I got from the rig. We can... Jane cut him off. Don't be saying things like that, Sash. Sash. He hated that nickname, but she loved it. Sasquatch, a.k.a. Big Hairy Bastard. You were going nuts being at home with me, and the caregivers help so much. We can't just survive off the little money we have left. I wouldn't want that for you or for me. I feel like a burden enough. The traffic began to move, but Tom was focused on the feeling of his throat being sewn up. A blaring horn snapped his attention back to the road, and he waved to the animated prick in a Porsche behind him. You aren't a burden, baby. A small silence then. How are you feeling today? Oh, you know me. I keep going. He could tell she was smiling, and again, his throat sewed shut that little tighter. The job will be good for you. I don't want it, Jane. I don't do well for long periods of time in the night. It messes with my head. The two went quiet again, and then she spoke. I know, Sash. Since what happened with Brad, I... Brad. The name cut through him. Sorry, I have to go, he said bluntly. I'll be there soon. Tom hung up the phone. He didn't need to think about that. He didn't need to think about the sound of screams in the midnight sea. He was reminded of them enough. He pulled up to their house and let the engine idle a few moments so the heating stayed on. It was winter and the snow was due to fall any day now, and the bite of the wind was a constant reminder that the hot summer and picnics in the park were a faded memory. The large trees that lined their street, once so vibrant and green and teeming with birds and squirrels and all kinds of other critters, were now stripped and barren, like 
lonely skeleton standing by the roadside trying to lean down and touch those living underneath it with its wooden fingertips. He pushed the door open and brought in Jane's bags and placed them in the living room next to her bed. He put the fire on, lighting it with a couple of matches, and then put it on a low setting while the logs burned and popped in a growing glow of red, like pulsing veins of lava pushing through the wood, giving way to thousands of tiny dancers dressed in blue and yellow. Back outside, Jane sat bundled up in her coat with her scarf around her head. She had asked the nurse to draw her eyebrows on for her, which Tom thought to be strange. He thought a moment of rubbing them off and redoing them, making her look constantly surprised, but he didn't think that would be appropriate. He opened the door, trying to shield Jane as much as possible from the cold breeze. The sun had finally dropped below the horizon now, painting the sky in dark reds and yellows, bleeding away from a dull blue. The moon, in its full phase, looked over them. Tom eyed the skyline as he carried Jane into the house. It reminded him of those long nights at sea, where the night sky was bursting with billows of tiny lights like a black canvas left in the hands of a toddler armed with glittering glue. He got her in and carried her onto the bed, undressing her. He wiped her down with wet wipes and redressed her in her nightgown. She had been sleeping for most of the journey back home, and even him carrying her didn't wake her fully. She stirred a little and cracked him a small smile, but then sleep took her once more. He tucked her in the metal-framed bed and got her bedpan and her crutches next to the railing should she need to get out for some reason. He fluffed her pillows and put some lavender oil on the duvet. She always loved the smell of lavender, that and roses, and he was fresh out of that one. Finally, he placed slippers over her feet and tucked them under the covers and hooked up the IV drip and the heart monitors to her. She looked a little like a robot, wires poking out here, there, and everywhere, and the sight of her made his stone face begin to weep. He never cried when she was awake. He wouldn't let her see him like that, so he bottled it up for moments like this, when he could allow himself to grieve for his wife that still breathed. Only a few tears, though. Never anything more than that. He couldn't open the dam fully, or he might not be able to close it again. Carl's voice now pushed into his mind. The shadows. They can bring things from your mind back to life. Have you ever spoken to a professional about what happened? Tom shook the sound away and snuck something on the TV. He listened quietly to the sound of the heart monitor beeping and took out his journal from the side of the bed. He had always written down his thoughts, something that helped him get through the months at sea, something that stopped him diving in at times, too. Sunday. Home. Jane is in bed now. I'm glad she didn't have too much of a bad time at the hospital. She's such a strong woman. God knows I would be telling everybody how much that fucking camera hurt. There must be a better way of finding tumors in the stomach, right, rather than a damn camera? The chemo is kicking her ass. She hasn't been sick much, but her hair has finally gone, and she's so weak and sleeps most of the time. She wants me to go for this job. I don't want to, really. I want to stay with her. What if something happens and I'm not here? I know her sister is only a few minutes away, but still. She does want me to get out of the house, though, and to be honest, the break would be nice. Tom looked at the last line. The break would be nice. He scolded himself almost disgusted at what he had written. He tore the page out and threw it on the fire. He called himself a prick 
and wrote something new. Sunday, 10.09 p.m., home. I got the job. Jane's doing as well as she can. Some shit on TV. I would kill for a drink. Good night. Are you ready to dive deeper into the abyss of horror, darkness, and all things that go bump in the night? Look no further than the Anthology of Horror Podcast Network, your gateway to the macabre and the mysterious. But first, let's talk about our fellow fiends and ghouls on the network. Scary Jerry, our resident guide to the eerie unknown, hosts not one, but two spine-chilling shows. First up, we have Dark Side of the Nerd, where Jerry explores the darkest corners of nerd and geek culture revealing the shadows lurking beneath your favorite fandoms. Do you think you know everything about your beloved franchise? Ha! Think again. Jerry uncovers the darkness of it all. And if that's not enough to send shivers down your spine, Jerry's got a little something extra for you with demented darkness. Brace yourselves for horrifying stories written by Jerry himself, including but not limited to his spine-tingling sequel to The Death Valley Man. Trust us, you won't want to listen to this one alone. But wait, there's more. Ever wanted to laugh while embracing the dark and edgy side of gaming? Look no further than Foxhound43, streaming now on Rumble. He's your hilarious video game streamer and the good-natured edgelord you never knew you needed. Prepare to laugh your fucking dick and balls off as you follow his epic gameplay adventures. Now for our newest addition to the network, we present Crypt of Horror, hosted by the ever-charming Wolf Dan. Here we delve into all things related to horror entertainment, movies, books, music, games, and beyond. If you're a horror aficionado, this show is definitely going to be your go-to. But that's not all, my fellow fear seekers. We've just unleashed a limited edition t-shirt to celebrate our Halloween special, featuring the infamous mugshot of none other than myself, Spring-Heeled Jack. This design is a collector's dream, but beware, quantities are limited, and this shirt will vanish into the night come November. So visit our merch shop now at aohpmerch.com to secure your piece of horror podcast history. So whether you're a fan of the eerie unknown, a nerd with a dark side, a horror enthusiast, or just looking for a good scare, the Anthology of Horror Podcast Network has you covered. Rate us five stars, share with your fellow thrill seekers, and join us for more tales that will haunt your dreams. Coffee machine is busted, Jerry said, his unbuttoned shirt giving way to his flabby neck. Tom looked at him with amazement. There was no way someone as, quote, big-boned as Jerry should be wearing a shirt that tight, let alone walking around the warehouse on the night shift. Got it, Tom said, looking at the broken machine. So if you want some, you're going to have to bring your own. Gotcha, 
Tom laughed, remembering the pack of supplies in his car. I'm sure I will. Tom eyed up the cupboards, seeing if he could salvage a beverage, courtesy of the company. He began pulling doors open, looking through tea-stained cupboards in the warehouse canteen. He pulled old cardboard boxes out of different styled tea bags. Most of them are empty, regular, extra strong. The decaf tea bags were still in their plastic wrapping, and Tom wasn't that desperate yet. His fingers reached all the way to the back and pulled out a small box of green tea. He gave them a glance, took one out, and then flipped on the kettle that looked more used than a $5 whore in Amsterdam. Jerry eyed the green tea bag sitting in the cup. Tom sensed the glare. What? he said, a little more defensively than he had intended. He didn't want to come off as a dick on his first job. Especially not to his new boss. Nothing, Jerry said. The last guy we had doing the night watch security shift was into the herbal stuff too. He was a little... Jerry made a circle with his fingers around the temple. Squirrely. Tom tried to hold back the smile, beginning to crack behind his thick brown beard. Jerry's face stayed stoic and flat, so Tom buried the smirk behind the bush of whiskers. Squirrely, he said. Yes, Jerry nodded. But working a shift like this, alone in your post, watching the monitors, it can get to a person sometimes. Really? Tom said, his skin beginning to flush. He thought again about the bullshit interview he'd had the day before. How they were trying to pull his leg. It seemed that everybody was in on the gag. How so? Jerry went to speak, his large belly rising as he struggled to take in a full breath. The man must have easily weighed close to 30 stone, and if Tom smelt as bad as he did, he wouldn't want to take a breath too deep either. Well, you're the fifth guy we've had in the past few months doing this work. I don't get it, Jerry said. The money's decent, the hours are long, yeah, but you get the radio, the canteen, you get to relax. It's just for some reason... No one wants to stay very long. It's quite annoying, actually, finding new staff all the time. Tom felt the room grow a little warmer. Why does nobody want the job? Is it the isolation? I worked away for many years on the oil rigs in the Atlantic. My own company is what I prefer. People are assholes. No disrespect. None taken, Jerry said, resting his sausage fingers on the stained counter. Two guys left without giving notice, and the last guy, the one who liked the herbal tea, was found in a bad way. Tom's ears pricked. A bad way? Tom eyed Jerry who shrugged. He was always a little odd. Was found trying to pull something out of Greta. Greta? The mail feeder, Jerry said. Big fucking rattling thing in the middle of the warehouse between the mail racks. Can sort and spit out over 1,000 envelopes sized A4 to A6 in less than a minute, Jerry said, almost proudly. Poor bastard was found by the cleaner in the morning with his arm up to his elbow in the mouth of Greta. She'd almost chewed it off. That sounds terrible, Tom said coldly. And Jerry shrugged once more, maybe getting his exercise in for the day. He was a weird guy. Was still alive, too, when the cleaner found him. They took him away in the ambulance. Kept on talking about the night. Fuck if I know, the guy was a freak. Ex-junkie, been in prison for armed robbery a few years back. Uh, they found him with LSD in his bloodstream, so go figure. Do you normally hire ex-cons? Tom asked. Actually, yes, most of the time, in fact, Jerry said. The company is part of some government scheme. We hire those trying to get their shit together, and the government pays 75% of the wages. That's 
good, Tom said. What were the other ones like? Who, the employees? One was an ex-coke dealer. Uh, the other, a woman, was into fraud. Tom smiled slightly. Giving people a second chance. I like that. But the LSD thing? I knew a guy once that fell into a bush and thought he was time itself. Spent three hours masturbating until the police got a hold of him. Both men laughed loudly. What was the guy's name, the one who uh, decided to feed his arm to Greta? Fuck if I remember, Jerry snorted. Wallace? Walter? Willie? I don't know. We have that many different staff here. Nobody could keep track of the new faces. Jerry eyed him and smiled slightly. Speaking of convictions, Jerry said, eyeing him. And Tom felt the room grow a little bit warmer. Don't worry about it. I know you've got your shit together, he said, almost condescendingly. Tom went to speak, but the kettle clicked off. Your water's ready, Jerry said, quickly changing the subject, exhaling a steady, blow-breath smelling of takeaways and cigarettes. They walked from the canteen through the corridor. It wasn't well lit, and the only light, coming from a few single, lonely bulbs suspended from the ceiling by thick wiring like glow-in-the-dark spiders. Portraits of employees and message boards hung on the wall. Tom noticed a fundraiser was happening for a local cancer charity, Race for Life. You got a pen? Tom said, holding his hand out. Jerry turned with a grunt. He was panting. He must be sweating his back out now in the 15 feet they've walked from the canteen. What? He said. He looked upon it with horror. You don't want to go do that running thing, do you? He gasped. I like being outdoors, doing some exercise. Like I said, I was on the oil rigs. Only dead men stay idle. True, Jerry said, scratching his large chin, digging his fingers between the acne and patches of unshaven stubble. Not for me, though. I've noticed, Tom thought. Jerry studied the board a little closer, his big eyes bulging under his heavy-rimmed glasses. Well, if you want to join, you got to put your name down. He handed Tom a pen. It's a good cause, though. I usually join them afterwards for a couple of drinks down at the pub. Tom wrote his name on the A4 paper underneath the flyer. I want to book that night off, Tom said, handing the pen back, and Jerry laughed. Jesus, not even done your first night and you're making demands. You'll be after my job next. Tom didn't share the big man's laughter. He tapped the date with his pen, holding Jerry's gaze. His smile faded. September 8th. I'm taking that day off, he said stoically. Just remind me in the morning, okay? I'll see what I can do for you. The two continued through the corridor. It wasn't very long, maybe just a hundred feet or so, and they passed a few offices which still had their monitors on standby with big sticky notes with black ink saying, Log off. Don't switch off. In good, passive-aggressive, office fashion. The screensaver's light pushing through the darkened windows. They got to the opening at the end, and Jerry pushed open the double doors. Both stepped through, and he held out his hand at the large, open space in front of him. His face painted in a wide grin under the dull light like a slave trader, telling his new arrivals they were going to work in the land of milk and honey. The look of pride slapped across his face. This is my baby, my creation. Jerry let out a satisfied grin, and Tom half expected him to either burst into tears, break into song, or touch Tom's shoulder with a solemn look in his eye, none of which Tom particularly welcomed. It's big, Tom said flatly, looking into the warehouse filled with rows upon rows of shelves of different boxes and bundles of paper. 
A sleeping forklift truck sat alone in the far corner under a fluorescent light strip which flickered and blinked. Tom eyed the small bar to the left. It was waist height and made of white chipped wood. Behind it, several large panes of glass and a door leading into the room behind. Through the glass, a chair, and several monitors propped up. The view of the security stream was visible from where he was standing, and I'm guessing that's where I'm going to be calling home for the rest of the night, Tom queried, nodding to his nocturnal palace with his cap. Indeed, that's going to be you. Jerry stood, back upright, after taking a rest against the wall. Some more things i got to show you first, though. The two men meandered through the warehouse shop floor, Jerry taking pleasure in showing him the alphabetized freight, mail, optics, and sorting panels. This is where the magic really happens, he said, gesturing to a bunch of yellow and white sacks made of rough woven plastic, dangling from hooks, like dismembered ball sacks. The sorters get mail from all over the country, and it all comes out of this machine right here. He tapped on a large metal machine with a huge open mouth, baskets, and mesh wiring at the bottom, loose letters and documents, clinging for dear life on the edge, lest they fall onto the ground. Now I'm guessing this is Greta, Tom said, inspecting the machine for remnants of bones and fingernails. Jerry nodded. You guessed correctly. She may look gentle, but she can bite. As well as the last weirdo you're taking over from, we've had a couple of other guys lose a finger or two in this thing. One guy mangled his hand up really bad. Nothing that a nice redundancy package can't fix, though. Jerry slapped Tom's shoulder. Tom's boulder-like shoulders didn't budge, nor did his stern face. Was he okay? Of a fashion, he said. He had to learn to jerk off with the other hand if that makes you feel any better. It didn't make Tom feel any better. Considering the state-of-the-art machinery and setup of the place and how reputable a company it was, it seemed a little like a circus show of horrors. He had been here for less than an hour and already learned of several accidents. Tom wondered how they hadn't been sued or shut down. But he didn't figure he should bring up such things on his first shift. He wondered what else had gone on and why the manager was being so coy about the whole thing. This place pays weekly, right? He said as Jerry continued to show him the wonders of the warehouse. It sure does. Or we can pay monthly if you prefer. No, weekly's fine. Tom stopped inside. Look, I'm going to need a week up front if that's okay. I hate to ask, but my wife... Jerry stopped mid-shelf fingering and turned to Tom. Tom stood stoic, trying not to look too desperate. He never asked for money, ever. But a time comes when a man has to swallow his pride and ask for help. And here he was, swallowing it up by the spoonful. I'm sorry, Tom said. After a moment of silence, I just... No, no, that's, that's completely okay, Tom, Jerry said. I understand. I'll see what I can do for you. Tom felt his heart beat a little slower. A feeling of warmth rushed through him, and for the first time in a while, he felt a blanket of genuine warmth wrap around him. And dare he think, he cracked his smile under those dim lights. Thank you, boss. That'll help a lot. You've got a big heart, Tom. I can see that. There's nothing wrong with sharing a little kindness. Not enough of that these days. He moved in a little closer and gripped Tom's hand tightly. You'll do well here, my man. He surveyed the racking and boxes. Yeah, you'll fit right in here. The two continued to the last part of the warehouse. A small door was set at the back, which was locked, 
It looked as though the room had been thrown up in a haste. The walls were thin and made of plywood, roughly painted, and had no windows. Jerry pulled out a set of keys and unlocked the door. Inside was the loneliest damn toilet that Tom had ever seen. The thing looked so cold that Tom thought if he went on it for too long, the base would strip off the top layer of ass hair and skin. Tom figured that he would not be using the shitter tonight. The last thing he wanted was to be sat frozen to the bowl mid-shift, unable to run and stop intruders from ransacking the safe in the boss's office. How the hell would he explain that mess when he got home? I personally like to use this when the place is quiet, Jerry said. It's small, secluded, and is locked. It isn't much, but it's more solitary than the others you'll find near the canteen in the hallway we came through to get here. Most of the workers use it too, because, let's face it, nobody likes others hearing them shit. The idea wasn't appealing to Tom, like him going to the cheap whore all the guys had already ran through, but he smiled and nodded anyway. Jerry closed the door. Now the part you've been waiting for. Jerry began walking, the smell of sweat stinging Tom's nose. Your office. The skin around Tom's ball sack tightened and his breath pushed from his mouth like a puff of smoke. He unzipped his thick jacket up tight and dipped his cap down. He was thankful he wore extra layers before coming out, the winter air biting his skin. Cold, Jerry said, hulking his huge feet along the ground. Freezing. Ah, you get used to it, trust me. Easy for you to say walking around with all that blubber. Don't you have the heating on or anything? Tom asked, pressing his beard down into his neck. Jerry shook his head. Sorry, kid. Tom's nostrils flared. Kid, don't call me a fucking kid. The thermostat's been busted for a while. Just in time for December. Merry Christmas to us, eh? There's a small heater in your security room. Nothing fancy, but it should stop the icicles from forming in your nostrils. They walked around the wooden bar and through a singular door in between the large glass panes. Tom saw filing cabinets lining the wall, an old ticking clock that seemed to be broken, to his delight. A couple of desks with dead monitors reflecting his etched, ghostly silhouette back at him. On one of the desks bore a small placard that read, You don't need to be mad to work here, but it helps. And another, more macabre one, that said, Leave your soul at the door, you won't need it here. How to sell a place to a guy. At the back of the office stood another door, brown and looking like it wouldn't hold back a pissed-off mouse, let alone an intruder with the word that said, Secrety, written on the front. The U was missing. Where's the rest of the sign? Tom pointed out. Jerry, who had pulled out a bar of chocolate from fuck knows where, studied the sign under the harsh UV strip lighting. He just shrugged. No you. I suppose the you isn't important as long as someone sits in that room and watches the monitors. It doesn't matter what the sign reads. Tom felt a little offended like he wasn't needed, but he had a point. It could have easily read secretary, which 
He supposed when there's nobody home and he's the only one there, it's pretty much the same thing anyway. His mind wandered back to Jane. She had been a secretary in her old job before she had gotten too sick to work. Tom had finished at the rig and was working as a mechanic. The hours were long and he was often exhausted when he got home and stinking of motor oil. Jane's doctors had said it was just fatigue, stress, and maybe even a little bit of the flu. But when the flu didn't go away, it turned out to be much, much worse. And Tom hung up his tools to be at home for her in the daytime hours. He didn't need sleep, he never had. A couple of hours and a power nap through the day had been what he was used to when he was working those long months out at sea. His doctor said he was heading towards a heart attack by way of stress, and his nervous system was at risk of burning out. But he had never listened to the advice of doctors. Jane's illness was a prime example, but it started earlier than that, if he was being honest with himself, probably from his mother, because she had believed in them so avidly until a Tuesday afternoon checkup turned into something sinister growing inside of her, missed over and over until she vanished into herself, and Jin became her new best friend. He shook the memory of his mother from his mind. Why had she popped into his head? He hadn't thought of her in months, longer even. God, had it been that long? It must have been close to five years this coming Christmas when she sank half a bottle of Gordon's Dry and got behind the wheel of her car. Are you listening? Jerry scowled. Yeah, Tom hurried, scratching the back of his head, letting the memory of mangled metal and broken headlights fade from his mind. Jerry eyed him with those reddening eyes and those puffy sacks hanging underneath them. He gestured to the single chair propped up against a wooden desk with three monitors with split screens in front of it. They were black and white, except for the canteen which was in color, the lights still on. This is the epicenter of security of my warehouse. He enunciated the last part like he was speaking about a prized possession, a child, a lover, or the last bag of Doritos. Here, he made a sweeping motion with his hands, like he had discovered the lost treasure of Horus in the Valley of the Kings. Here is where you will spend your shift, looking over these monitors with explicit attention. Anything moves, you check it out. There's a flashlight in the drawer with a ton of batteries, and there's a kettle and a sink over there. He pointed to a small fridge and a wash basin. We don't keep it stocked, though, so I imagine you brought your own things. I did indeed. It's in my car out back. I'll get my bag before you leave. Wonderful news. Don't want you falling asleep on me. Gotta keep my baby in check. Yes, sir, Tom said bluntly. Sir was my dad, and he was a prick. Call me Jerry, he said, puffing out his chest. Thanks, Tom said sourly, but I prefer sir, I think. Familiarity breeds contentment, and I'm not into letting myself get too close. No offense. Jerry was taken aback. He obviously wasn't used to being told no. I see. Is there any reason for that? Jerry waited for an answer, and Tom took in a breath. He heard the swooping of waves and thunder, the wild air against his hair and the calls of a drowning man in the black, tirading sea. Do you have a furry friend who's not as spry as they used to be but still longs for outdoor adventures? 
I'd like to introduce you to the original Wiener Wagon, the ultimate solution for your beloved senior or mobility challenge dog. Imagine your faithful companion basking in the sun, their eyes gleaming with excitement and their tail wagging with pure delight. That's the experience the original Wiener Wagon offers. Each wagon is meticulously custom built in the United States to your exact specifications, ensuring that your cherished dog rides in both comfort and style. The quality of this product is nothing short of phenomenal. John, the owner, is a true craftsman with remarkable talent and an incredibly quick turnaround time. When you invest in the original Wiener Wagon, you're investing in the happiness and well-being of your furry family members. So why wait? Give your beloved pet the gift of mobility, freedom, and outdoor adventures. Get your order started today at, the orig at OriginalWienerWagon.com and watch your dog's eyes light up with the joys of exploration. That is OriginalWienerWagon.com. Tom walked alone out of the secretary office and through the warehouse. He meandered down the hallways past the empty offices of payroll, human resources, witchcraft, and into the main lobby where customers came to collect missed parcels, mail, lost children, and pressed his lanyard against the small black box at the entrance and pushed open a double set of glass doors. The night air hit him like a truck, and he could see the night sky suffocated by black clouds the last remnants of the evening sun disappearing behind a snaking black claw in the night sky. Considering he had the cloud coverage, the night air bit his balls worse than foreplay gone wrong. He walked along the walkway lined with dull grass, the sound of his boots clicking on the asphalt. He reached his numbing fingers into his pocket and pulled out his car keys for his truck. He clicked the button, and the machine's headlights lit up. Hello again. That was a quick shift. Did you miss me? The sound of his wife in his ear. He shook her away. He didn't need any distractions right now. The first night away from her, leaving her alone in bed against all his morality. But when you have wolves knocking at your door asking for bills to be paid and there's no more, just one more month chances left, you gotta ignore the pain in your chest and do what makes sense. Tom pulled at the door handle and the gathering frost crunched relinquishing its icy grip before popping open where he climbed into the driver's seat. Don't feel bad, Jane had said as he was leaving earlier that night. I know you don't want to go, but you're going crazy being at home with me all the time. You'll be fine, and so will I. If I need anything, I can just call my sister. You get out of here for a while and enjoy the first shift at the new job. You'll love it. You need it, and I love you. He bit down on his lip hard, trying to stop the rawness from creeping in. He slammed his hand on the steering wheel and gripped it tightly, pressing his head into the leather. He breathed long and hard, remembering what his counselor had said. Breathe, and breathe a little more until it passes. So he did just that, and after a few moments the pain subsided. The thought of his wife being without him, or more likely, him being without her. He reached in and took out his rucksack from the passenger seat. It was filled with snacks, a metal flask of coffee, and a couple of tea bags, and a bottle of milk just to be safe. He had his journal, too, to make notes of interesting things he would see on the cameras. Conversation topics for when he got home. God knows they needed something new to talk about other than cancer. He threw the bag over his shoulder and shut the door. He checked for his mobile phone and his battery pack, his fingers pushing past the packet of biscuits and chicken bites, and he found it there, tucked at the bottom, and he breathed a sigh of relief, 
a plume of ghostly smoke clinging to the inside of the windshield. Tom walked back to the entrance of the building. He stood in front of his home for the night, taking it all in as the night air numbed his face. The building was big and made of iron cladding, like a mountain of black obscuring anything and everything that got close to you. Thankfully, it was only one story. There was the lower deck, which you needed to take a ride in a rickety elevator to get to, but that was where the uncollected parcels without a return address were kept. After six months, they were either destroyed, or if it was something good, auctioned off at the annual Christmas party. He'd been told by Jerry that someone got a Rolex last year. Work all year in a job you hate, for the chance of something good at the end. And people called him crazy for picking the night shift. The money wasn't terrible, however, so he convinced himself anyway. It was a little over minimum wage, but the option for overtime was always there, and the work wasn't hard. Watch a bunch of monitors for a few hours, read a book, watch a movie. How hard could it be? He felt the baseball bat in his carry-all digging into his shoulder, just in case, he thought, and the feel of that metallic hitting stick made him feel just a little bit safer. He took out his lanyard as he got to the front entrance. It was wrapped awkwardly around his neck and arm, so he dropped the rucksack to the ground to stop him from garroting himself as he took out his pass. He heard footsteps quickly behind him. He spun around on the spot, his heart jackhammering. Nothing in the darkness moved. The night air seemed a little warmer as his face started to flush with blood. He didn't call out to the darkness. Only fucking morons did stuff like that. He'd seen his fair share of horror movies and wasn't in the habit of walking into the woods alone because he heard something moving. He waited a moment. Something moved in the distance in the tree line behind the car park. It was small, dimly lit by the street lighting of the car park, and a moment later, he saw it emerge from the distance. A dog. Tom meandered back to the secretary office where he found Jerry looking over the monitors. Do you see it? Tom asked, gesturing to the screens. Jerry moved next to him, his heavy weight creaking the table. See what? The dog on the monitor, in the distance. It's a little thing, thin, too. Jerry eyed the screens again. He shook his head. No, he said. I don't see anything. Tom queried the big man. Are you sure it was right there? Tom pointed to where the dog had been. Jerry again looked at him for longer than was comfortable. You probably did see one, he said. We get them from here from time to time. All sorts, actually. Badgers, deer, foxes, all kinds of critters. If they come to the building, do me a favor. Don't feed them. You'll end up like the last guy, screaming to high hell about the damn dogs that he kept feeding on his shift. Like the last guy, Tom scrunched his face a little. You mean Wallace? Ah, something like that. Jerry scratched his receding hairline. The guy was seen coming into work in his last few shifts with bags and bags of fresh meat for the damn things. He was warned about it a few times. He put a sausage finger on the monitor. They're fucking huge, those woods. Go on for miles in all sorts of directions. All sorts of things going on in there, too. Jerry pulled out a bundle of papers in a binder and began flicking through them on his desk. Tom wanted to pry further, but held his tongue. Didn't want him thinking he was turning squirrely on him on his first night. The two went over some more of the checks, the HR policy, and the fire evacuation procedure. Who to call if the cameras go off, who not to call if anything else goes wrong. I have had the pleasure of being on call for your first week. Carl, the guy who interviewed you, doesn't like to be pestered every five minutes by the newbies. 
I'm not happy about it, but I get paid for it. Anything you need to ask about, questions, queries, where the toilet paper is, just give me a call. He looked up from the bundle of paperwork and gave a slight smile, but don't take the piss. I'll be fine, sir. Wonderful. Jerry packed the papers up. I'll see you in the morning. Have a good shift. First night, Monday, 11.30 p.m., Secretary Room. I honestly thought I was going to throw up at the smell of that fat bastard's body odor. I mean, I don't shower every day or use deodorant all the time, but Jesus Christ, that guy needs Febreze-lined clothing. Anyway, first night is underway. Got the game on my phone. England are winning, which is surprising. Thankfully, I remembered my charger because it would have been a long night otherwise. The monitors are pretty quiet at the moment. I saw a dog, too. It was a skinny thing, maybe a Rottweiler or something, but still I saw it sniffing around the truck. Maybe I dropped something on my way in. It had gone by the time Jerry had come around, though. Little bugger probably took a quick shit and ran away. I'll have to watch my step when I leave in the morning. The place is a little cold, but nothing I can't handle, but I gotta remember to bring some extra layers with me when the weather starts to change. I keep thinking about you, babe. I'm watching the clock and trying to resist the urge to call you and check in. I know you'll be alright, it's just a few hours and I'll be home again to make you some breakfast. I did hear something strange before though, and to be honest, I don't really want to write it down. But I will anyway so we can talk about it when I get home. I could have sworn when I was getting out of my car and walking to the building earlier that I heard footsteps behind me. I turned around, ready to beat the fuck out of some punk who thought I'd be an easy target. But... Only the wind met me. The wind and the trees in the distance. Either I imagined it, or they have some big fucking squirrels around here. He put the pen down and giggled at the thought of a squirrel running around the car park in a pair of size 12, steel-toe-capped boots. He sat back and watched England play the last few minutes of the game against Switzerland from the iPlayer. He hadn't watched it, as he needed some sleep earlier in the day and had avoided all social media, not like he went on it much anyway, but he avoided it just the same so that he wouldn't risk seeing the result of the game. They were winning one to nothing so far, and a few moments later, as Tom had cracked open his thermos and poured himself a cup of coffee, the game ended, and Tom turned it off and put the phone on standby mode before checking if he had any missed calls. He saw that there were none, and he checked his voicemail just to be sure before putting it away in his jacket pocket. Tom had experienced the quiet before when he was out at sea. He had been in the middle of nowhere, no wind, no stars, and just the slightest lick of the gentle sea touching the foundations of the rig. But as he sat there in his chair, coffee in hand, he could hear the sound of his heart beating in his ears. He looked over the monitors, the gray static picture looking back at him. Tom remembered something else he wanted to write in his journal, to say something about the game. He pulled it open and got to work. England played with fuck, he hissed as the pen ran out of ink. He hoped that he had brought another one and rummaged through his bag to fish another bureau or hell a damn pencil would do. 
He fingered through the bottom past the array of snacks and the goodies that he had with him, but there was no pen. He wasn't desperate enough to write about England not playing terrible to use the packet of tomato sauce. However, the thought did cross his mind. Instead, he sat back and looked around the desk for something to write with. He cracked open the drawer on the cabinet and smiled. To his heart's content, there was a nice, crisp bureau in black to write down his thoughts. He picked it up and went to write. As he closed the drawer, the pen slipped from his fingers, and he crouched to get it. He mustn't have been concentrating because he lifted his head and banged it on the bottom of the protruding drawer, a small cut appearing on the top of his skull. He bit down and hissed, and then let out a long, seething motherfucker before leaning back in the chair. Tom leaned to close the door when he saw that his colossal head had dislodged the bottom. Again, he called himself a fucking idiot, knowing that this would no doubt come out of his paycheck. But as he looked further, he saw something. The drawer had a false bottom, and under it was what looked to be a small stack of papers. Tom put his hand in and fished out the bundle. It was coated in a light dust, and he blew on it, sending particles across the monitors. The wedges were frayed and browned, and the spine of the book was well-worn. The Space Between. He mouthed the name of the story. The cover was like the old Reader's Digest books you could order. No picture, just a leather dust jacket with the title on the front. No author either. Tom opened it, and the smell of damp and mothballs pushing into his nostrils. As I wandered through the howling night under the midnight sun, I found myself in a precarious position, one not of contentment, but of fear, a primal fear that one doesn't inherently understand, but is all too familiar when its icy fingernails trace upon your spine. Alone I wander through this wood, dark and void of life, like the winter hath stripped all its delights and warmth, leaving only a skeleton of its former self, a shell, if you will, a shell of its former glory. What Tom could surmise, it was the story of a boy who had lost his friend in a large forest, either lost, or he had been abandoned and was trying to find his way home. It was macabre at best. He put the book down a moment and gave a quick look over the monitors. All was still on that black and white screen. He flicked through the cameras, the basement, the offices, the warehouse, and then finally the car park. Nothing of note. Tom dug into his duffel bag and pulled out a couple of small snacks more out of boredom than hunger, and dug into some biscuits. He opened up his journal, touching the cut at the top of his head. He wouldn't need stitches, but the morning shower would hurt like a bitch. He moved over to a fresh page. After crossing out the shit about England playing well, not meant to be, boys, he thought to himself with a small smile, he took out a pack of nicotine gum from his pocket and started to chew. He held his hand steady a moment, unable to bring himself to market. The blank page stared at him like it had teeth. His pen hesitated over the first line. You want the first imprint to be good, and he didn't want to fuck it up on the first word. How the hell do writers do this, he thought to himself, thinking of all the books he had read, amazed how they all started out as empty space. Only a few hours in. Not left to go now. P.S. I hit my head. It fucking hurt. But I found a book which I might give a read. Seems to have been written by some pretentious bastard, but I don't know why it was there. Maybe one of the old workers had left it there. Maybe it's actually filled with nude pictures, and it was his hiding place for them. He put the pen down. That would do for now. He would come back to it when he thought of something else to say to himself, or more to make notes to tell Jane about later.
That was the first night, Jerry said, opening the door at 7 a.m. sharp. Tom was a little further into the book, he found, so engrossed in it that he didn't hear the big man come in. The boss eyed him annoyed. You should be watching the monitors, not a book. Again, Tom didn't stir, staring at the book like he was sleeping with his eyes open. Jerry moved to him, half wondering if he was dead with his eyes open. He looked over his shoulder to see if there were some nude photos hidden in there which Tom didn't feel like sharing. What you got there, he said, moving closer. Tom could feel the breath on his neck, but he still didn't pull his attention from the pages, his knuckles turning white, digging into the leather cover. Jerry's eyes licked the pages, and his heart skipped a beat. Hey, he bolstered, kicking the chair Tom was in. Tom flinched, rubbing his eyes and breathing quickly like he had been shocked by a raw wire when putting up the Christmas tree. Hey, boss, he said, running his hand through his hair and beard. You been there long? The drive home was as shit as you could imagine. The first night shift, the busy roads that kept you from your bed, and the fumes you were running on, trying to stay awake before the copious amounts of caffeine in your system began to drop. A red light. Then another red light. Tom beeped his horn at a slow motorist and revved his beast's engine loudly, digging the needle into the red. The car in front waved him a fuck you and then took off. Tom continued quickly behind it before turning off the junction before the motorway. He didn't need to go on that in rush hour, so he took the longer route. It would be faster, less well-known. He never used a sat-nav. He found them to be lazy. So many people got caught in unnecessary traffic because they relied on a computer to tell them where to go. Tom, however, knew this part of town like the back of his hand. The back routes always got him to where he needed to be without being stuck behind Miss fucking Daisy. He got onto the long stretch of dirt road that ran parallel to the motorway where he could see hundreds of parked cars. The morning was still pretty dark, so the motorway looked like a million red eyes blaring into the morning twilight. Tom pulled out his phone and quickly checked if there were any missed calls. Nothing. No messages either. He checked the road in front of him, cruising with one hand on the wheel, his attention elsewhere. He punched in the number for his voicemail and looked up, raising the phone to his ear. A dog. A fucking dog. Tom stomped on the brakes of the beast as hard as he could, sending his mobile flying along the ground and slamming into the side of the passenger door footwell. The back end of the beast slid as the wheels locked, the dashboard lighting up with the ABS sensor and the brakes releasing and tightening quicker than a virgin's first orgasm. The dog in his headlights didn't move. It only stood there as the giant hunk of metal corralled towards it. Tom bit down his arms straight, his body tight, twisting the steering wheel, banking a hard right to the wrong side of the road, just narrowly missing the animal. The engine began to stall, heading straight for a farmer's brick wall that lined a huge, empty field filled with low mist. He slammed his foot on the clutch, threw the beast into first, and pulled the clutch back up and revved the engine, forcing the rev counter right into the red for the second time that morning, the hood of the pickup stopping inches from the brick wall. Tom held his gaze on the wall, lit up, blithe, bright lights for a second, panting heavily. Once he caught his breath and was sure he hadn't shit himself, he looked in the rearview mirror. The dog was gone. He arrived home around 20 minutes later, his feet crunching on the fallen snow as he made his way to the front door. The lights were still off, which was a good thing. It meant that Jane hadn't gotten up during the night, or if she had, she had been strong enough to turn the lights on and off. 
Tom put his key in the lock and stepped inside. The house was quiet. The small sound of the television set still on in the background. The smell of the gas fire in the air. The heat making the home a cozy little number. He stepped into the living room, knocking the snow from his boots, which gathered on his heels. Jane was still in bed sleeping soundly. He moved quietly and kissed her on top of the head, running his fingers over the smoothness. He eyed her for a moment, his heart catching in his throat. No matter how many times he saw her, she looked so beautiful, even though the illness was slowly eating her alive. The chemo was helping, and they had seen a lot of progress and regression of the cancer, but that didn't mean her clothes fit well. She hadn't eaten a substantial meal in months, surviving on bits of soup, and when she could stomach it, a slice of bread or two. Tom had lost weight too as a result. No point making a huge meal when there's only him to eat it. He changed her bedpan and got her morning medication ready with a drink of water next to her bed for when she woke up. Tom kicked off his boots and lay his head down on the couch next to her, flicking through the TV channels with no real interest. He couldn't wait to see his wife open her eyes again so they could talk about what had happened during his shift, or what hadn't happened more appropriately. The heat from the gas fire continued to swell and grow, melting the frost that gathered around his beard his head nestling into the cushions before his heavy eyes finally closed. Pans and cutlery rattled around him. Tom opened his eyes lazily. It was still dark. Had he slept all day? Panic struck him. He needed to feed Jane, give her her medication. He sat up and saw her bed to be empty. His stomach felt like it had been plunged into an icy river. He got to his feet. He stumbled. He was woozy. Was he drunk? No, he hadn't touched the stuff since the oil rigs, since Brad. The room was a blanket of darkness. The kitchen door was closed, only a band of golden light pushing through the darkness that encased him. Tom pushed the door open. Jane, he whispered, is that you? The door opened, and Tom felt the splash of seawater on his skin. The icy wind ripped through him, and he closed his thick, high-vis jacket around him, zipping it up as fast as the thick, cumbersome gloves would allow him. The tirading black sea smashed against the rig, huge waves of the abyss slamming and soaking him in a drenching downpour. The lights of the rig were flashing red, and Tom knew what that meant. Man overboard! Tom raced, still falling over his own feet, the smell of whiskey on his breath, the hard steel flooring digging into his knees and into his elbows as he crawled. He gripped the railings and eyed the scurrying men below him on the lower deck, pointing searchlights into the never-ending sea. There was a flash, of high-vis in the water before it vanished again below the surface. Men and women were throwing buoys and life rings out as far as they could, trying to command the flailing body in the water to grab hold. Tom bolted awake, his arms flailing like he was sinking below the surface of dark water. Tom's face slapped with worry, sweating and panting. He was drenched. He hadn't taken his coat off from outside, and he was laying in a pool of his own sweat. Bad dream, Jane said, nursing a cup of water concern on her face. Tom nodded, running his hands through his hair and beard. Do you want to talk about it? she asked. Tom shook his head no. I need a shower. A few minutes later, Tom walked downstairs with his hair combed back and his beard washed and his teeth brushed. He looked less of a Sasquatch and more of a groomed ape. He walked into the living room with his shirt off and a pair of loose gym shorts. His wife eyed him from her bed, nearly choking on the bowl of soup she was making her way through. Jesus, she said. Should I be worried? You never walk around like that anymore. I was wondering. 
if all that size under your clothing was just padding. Tom let out a smile. I was hot. I needed to cool down. You can turn the fire down, Jane smiled. I don't mind. Tom looked out the window and saw the frost gathering on the glass. No, he said, I'll be fine. You need to keep warm. Tom moved and gave her a kiss on the head, and they shared a look of contentment between them. He gave Jane the TV remote and checked the time. He had a couple of hours before he had to set out for work. Night shift number two. He was thinking he might actually make it the full week before he knew it. He made a cup of black coffee and sat next to Jane as she settled on a game show where people guess how much money is in boxes. I hate this show, she said, putting the remote down. Tom eyed her curiously. The hell you put it on for, then? He giggled. Jane shrugged. It's as good as any other crap on TV these days, plus I like it every now and then when they win the big money. The two of them sat in silence for a few minutes, watching the contestant cycle through every emotion known to mankind before walking away with a little over a thousand pounds, and them scoffing at the meager amount. They walk in with ten in their pockets and leave with a thousand and they still aren't happy, Tom said, sitting back, resting his coffee cup on his oversized gut. He wasn't fat. He was muscular, coated in fat. Not like Jerry, fuck that guy. Tom was prime steak with the fat left on. Jerry was just a ball of lard. Because there's a chance of winning more, people aren't content with what they actually win. Who gives a rat's ass if you could have won ten grand? You've walked out with a hundred times what you went in with. Jane rolled her eyes. What? he said, taking a drink. This is why I hate game shows, she said. So opinionated. They laughed now, and Tom felt a wave of warmth in her smile. So, tell me about your shift? The two of them spoke about the dullness of the night. He thought about telling her about the footsteps, the book, the dog, and even the near crash that he had on the way home. He thought against it, however. He didn't want to worry her. Nothing much happened, babe, just sitting on my ass, watching screens that didn't move, reading a couple of books I picked up from the store. They continued talking a little longer, before Tom clocked the time on the television. He let out a sigh and he stood up, stretching himself out. He adjusted Jane's pillows and duvets and changed her bedpan once more. He did her medication, put the radio on the station that she requested, and turned the fire low. He made sure the window was open just to crack, but still on the latch to let a little air in, and tucked her sheets in just the way she liked it. He told her he loved her, and touched her hands. They were so small inside of his. He could feel every knuckle and bone inside that thin skin. He smiled at her, and she smiled back. They locked lips, her mouth dry and lips thin, him devouring her face in his bushy beard. I love you, he said. I love you too, she whispered, just about holding on to staying awake. I'll see you in the morning. He stepped away, turning the light off, her silhouette illuminated a dark red by the fireplace. He put his key in the lock and pulled the door open, the hit of cold hitting him like an arctic wind from the night. You'd better, he whispered, before slipping into the howling night.
Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this spine-tingling journey through the shadows on another haunting episode of the Anthology of Horror podcast. We hope part one of Jay Darkmore's tale, The Night Shift, left you with a chill in your bones and a sense of lingering dread. His storytelling prowess is truly something to behold. As our Halloween special continues, remember to stay tuned for more sinister stories, eerie encounters, and macabre mysteries. We'll be here, waiting in the darkest corners of the night to bring you nightmares you won't soon forget. If you're curious to explore the depths of fear even further, don't hesitate to visit J. Darkmore's Realm of Darkness at jdarkmoreauthor.com. His tales are bound to ensnare your imagination. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so by going to instagram.com slash dukelandis17. And as always, if you've enjoyed our journey into the unknown, please take a moment to rate and review the Anthology of Horror podcast. Your support helps us create, and it helps us unearth the most chilling tales and share them with the world. Stay spooky, my friends, and remember that the darkness holds its own kind of beauty. Until next time. Just another night for the wicked Sitting with the insane Just another night for the twisted But I know I'm alive But I think I'm ready to go So I fall into the night You're never gonna get my You're never gonna get my